Hi everyone, this is Cassidy and welcome to episode 10. In this episode, my friend Rachel and I talk about her job as the manager of education and community engagement at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. I think you can gain a lot. I know I did and I have a lot of faith in young people being hired in symphony orchestras and the change that they are eliciting from the behind the scenes administrative standpoint. So please enjoy this episode and share it with your friends. Thanks. My name is Rachel Hagemeyer. I am originally from Edmond, Oklahoma, but in, went to school at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio. And now I live in Canton, Ohio. I am the manager of education and community engagement at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Woohoo! <laughs> so not only is she working for Canton, she's also a bassoonist. So why, what I made am. you choose bassoon? It's such a weird, such a weird story. I grew up in a, in a musical family, a very different type of musical family. My father is a bluegrass musician. So growing up, I went to bluegrass festivals, one in particular, the Walnut Valley Bluegrass Festival in Winfield, Kansas. And when I was 10, as people do at music festivals, they're jamming around campfires and just playing music and one night there was a bassoonist there. Her name is Nicolasa Custer. She teaches at the University of Pacific and she was there and she was jamming and playing bassoon and my little 10-year-old self was just so excited about it and I looked at my dad and I said I want to play bassoon and so you know I went and started sixth grade band and came back with my bassoon the next year and was like look I have one too. So yeah so that's why I started playing and kind of fell in love with it and did it ever since. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's so cool that you have that bluegrass background as well, because I don't think yeah. that's super common arrangement with bassoon. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. That's really awesome. So what were your experiences like playing in band in middle school and high school? Yeah, I, bassoon is a, I guess, depending on what school district you're in, but it, not as many people play it anymore. To find a student who wants to play the weird, tall, crazy double reed instrument it seems difficult. So I was one of two in a fairly decently sized band. I mean, once I got to high school, we had, you know, 200 in the band. So big, mm. big, big program. I, I really loved bassoon. Also playing bassoon, you often get given the not fun, exciting bits in the music. So I quickly learned that I was going to be bored in band. And <laughs> I, I was bored. And my Band directors knew it. They were like, you should join the Oklahoma Youth Orchestras. So I, when I was 13, joined the Oklahoma Youth Orchestras. So I did that as well. I love band. It's weird when you, you know, Oklahoma marching band is, is like a sport. So for, you know, half of the band season, I was playing saxophone or being drum major. So, you know, it was really nice to have the Oklahoma Youth Orchestras as well. So I could really focus on bassoon. 
anyone who's a bassoonist or anyone who just knows a little bit about classical music, the first piece I played when I joined the Oklahoma Youth Orchestra was Sorcerer's, the, the Fantasia, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes. Yep. Diddy bit. Yeah. So that's not an easy bit. Um, no. <laughs> so I got thrown into youth orchestra and I'm playing in the key. I think it's, I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's in G flat major oh just um, a gross key like yes not fun not yeah. all with the bassoon there's all sorts of weird finger thumb stuff happening but I immediately was completely challenged in a way that I'd never been challenged before and I was playing with a lot of other bassoonists because it was full sections I was 13 and they were all older than me and I was like ah but it was it was really cool to play with a section and in in full orchestra you have your own part and I think in I do love band, but oftentimes you kind of have to blend in, which isn't a bad thing. It's a very valuable lesson and you need to learn how to do that. But mm-hmm. when you're in a youth orchestra, you are your own part. Even within your bassoon section, there is a first bassoon and a second bassoon and a third. You know, you all have your own part. So you really have to take ownership and you really have to take responsibility of what you have to play. And it adds a, a pressure to, instead of just, okay, I didn't prepare, so I'll just come and blend in with everyone else versus if I don't prepare, everyone will know I didn't prepare. (laughs) But it was, I mean, it was so much fun. I got exposed to so much great orchestral rep. I got to go to Europe and play in Europe on a tour. I I know I got to do really great things in band. We played at Carnegie Hall in high school with my band. And, you know, even in marching band, we went to Grand Nationals, which was a really fun experience for marching band. And You know, I got to do a lot of really fun things. I think youth orchestra, though, especially the Oklahoma Youth Orchestra, has a very special place in my heart because it's where I really decided that this is what I wanted to pursue. And when I say this, I mean bassoon, but I also mean arts management. I Mm -hmm. was a part of the leadership council, and I really started loving the behind the scenes and the administrative aspect of it. You know, so I started asking questions when I was starting to apply for colleges and I knew I wanted to do bassoon performance, but I also really wanted to do this business part. I wasn't really sure. And, you know, I had like a happen chance thing on a plane where someone mentioned BW and I went back to the youth orchestra and I was talking with my executive director and I was like, Jason, someone mentioned the school called Baldwin Wallace and Jason Greif, he looks at me and he's like, that's where I went to school. (laughs) I was like, like, what? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, yeah. Brian Bowser is starting an arts management program. I really, you should totally check that out. And I, I really credit the youth orchestra with giving me a lot of skills of my playing ability, but also giving me direction for where I wanted to go in my life much earlier than I think a lot of people get direction, Mm -hmm. uh, which I was very, you know, I entered college as a double major and stuck with both of those majors. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not common. It's great. You know, people change their majors all the time, which is great, but I really had my heart set I, when I wanted to do it at an early age, you know, getting introdu- introduced to bassoon so young, but then also getting introduced to administration so young. So can't say enough about them. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your music administrative studies at BW. Yeah. What were some of your more valuable experiences that, or projects mm-hmm. that you were a part of while you were there? The arts management program at Baldwin Wallace is quite good. It's really pushes you and you can't coast through that program you know in order to graduate you have to have three internships Mm. so it puts a precedent of real world experience over classroom experience which I always 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 valued 
And so I started, you know, very young, getting internships, going to as many places as possible. You know, I'm really privileged in that I could afford to accept an unpaid internship. Mm -hmm. So that really helped me. I told myself at the beginning of college, even though I played bassoon, I wasn't sure what type of organization I wanted to work in. So I said, okay, you're not quite sure. So try to find internships in as many different types of organizations as possible and different types of positions. So I took, I worked for the Oklahoma City Ballet and I did, I helped with their summer intensive. So I managed all the dancers, which was an experience managing a bunch of ballet dancers. They're lovely, <laughs> but it's a different experience. And that was a lot of fun. I worked for Bachfest at BW and I worked for the orchestra, you know, I managed the orchestra tour, which, which is a lot of logistics and just booking hotel rooms which is super valuable. It's a big part, but you know, I, I really did enjoy that internship, putting together itineraries and that sort of thing. Really enjoyed that. Wasn't quite sure if I liked it. I worked for several playwrights. I did marketing for several playwrights in, in, in Cleveland and loved that. Got introduced to the African-American theater community, which I was not a part of at all before I, you know, worked with these people and it, it you know, had a lot of fun doing that and learning something new, but it wasn't quite right. Then the summer after my junior year, I worked for the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival, and I was the artistic administration in tune. So again, I was in charge of artistic admin. So I, I was picking up artists from the airport and their itineraries and driving them home and sorting music and printing music and making sure their packets are ready and assisting with concerts. And even though that's not the type of work I do now, I was working with orchestral musicians again. and. I was reminded of that in that summer of how much I love orchestral and chamber music. And so I think, you know, after that summer, I was like, okay, you want to be in the orchestra world. You want to be in this orchestral community. So that's where I started to focus my heart. And that's where I started, you know, I only I applied for jobs in, in the orchestra world. But beyond those internships I had in the arts management program, junior year, I put together a thing called band scramble, which is yeah. bring, bringing back in, yeah, bringing back in my, my bluegrass tradition. So a band scramble is, a, you know, things you do it at bluegrass festivals all the time. People put their name in a hat, you draw out names and whoever the names get drawn out, you're a band for the day and you figure out a song. And I said, okay, why can't we do that? Like with orchestral people. So I did it at the conservatory and I, you know, Adam, I did it for a project in a class first. And then Adam Sheldon looked at me and he was like, you should do this in real life. And so I had my first experience of putting together my own program, managing it, creating community partners, getting funding, doing all of that and put together this thing. And it went well. And we did it for lots of semesters. And I got to do stuff like that and have confidence in my own abilities to create. That experience, along with all this admin, admin experience, I was like, okay, you want to be able to work for someone who understands your need for the art and the creation and the creativity, but you're also working in admin. So I wanted to find a position where I would contribute directly to the art that we were producing. Mm. And so I ended up finding that very blessed that I found the job and I got the job I got. In this industry, the most important thing is being able to make connections keep connections, be authentic when meeting people, and to have a professional network that you can turn to for advice, for job offers, for 
for a lot. So how did you come across the position that you have now in your job? Mm. And what does your position essentially entail with the Kansas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're a senior at Alden Wallace and you're in the arts management program, you do, you have your senior capstone class. And in that capstone class, uh, we, we produced a, a show at Playhouse Square, which is a whole nother thing. And it was, it's like we all had second jobs, but it was super fun. We put on a show at Playhouse Square. Also in that capstone class, you do practice interviews and you make your resume and you actually have to apply for things and you practice going out into the real world. And so part of that practice is Brian Bowser, the director, he found real life positions that were posted out in the world. And he gave them to us for a fake interview. So what he did is he sent us the real job application, the real description. We had to apply for it and then interview with someone who was pretending to be the interviewee. So he gave me this job position for an education director <laughs> and I applied for it and interviewed. And, you know, and then we got feedback from that interview. And then Brian looked at me and he's like, well, this is a real job, so you should go apply for it. And it was the, awesome. uh, the, the education and community engagement manager of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And so I did. I did not think I had a shot in hell of getting this thing. I literally, I was, I was like, I am fresh out of college. This is managing an entire education program, all of the community engagement programming, running a youth orchestra. I do, I, ah, what? Sure, I'll apply for this job. So I did. I put all my effort in. And I sent in my application and I didn't know if I was going to hear anything back. And then I did. Got a phone interview with Michelle Charles, our executive director. And then I got an in-person interview. I knew I wanted the job when after the phone interview. I was literally so excited about the job that I, I ran around my house and I f accidentally fell because I was running in socks and we had wood floors. And I was, running around like, I was running around like a crazy person. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the perfect job. I have to get this job. Oh my gosh, if I don't get this job, calm down, Rachel. It's cool if you don't get, no, you need this job. And I was like literally talking to myself. My roommates came home and thought I was a little crazy. And then I did the in-person interview and, and my executive director, she took a, a leap with me. You know, I am young. I had no quote unquote real experience this would be my first position out of college. And she was looking at me and saying, I want you to run my education and community engagement program. And I said, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I actually do, and you know, you, you get into a job and then you really learn what it is. You can learn, oh, yeah. you, know, you can read oh, the yeah. job description. But yeah. You don't, you, you'll learn the job after you've been doing it for a few months. So what I do is I create and program our educational programming. So I choose the, I don't say curriculum because that would be a disservice to teachers who really use curriculum. But what I do is I use the standards for Ohio, the Ohio education standards and using those benchmarks of education and, 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 you know, these different standards that the kids have to reach. I create educational concerts, um, and, and weave in music and science or music and history. And I create, um, you know, our young person's concert, you know, last year we did music and math. And so I talked about three, uh, you know, an equilateral triangle has three equal sides, three, four times is three equal beats. And, you know, 
creating, you know, comparisons like that. And we put together a full orchestra concert. I do, you know, engagement programming in the schools. We work with the Head Start programming and we do trios in the schools along with a storybook. I write the script for those and I work with the Head Start locations to get things scheduled. And I work with our youth symphony. I don't conduct it, but I am at all the rehearsals. I am taking attendance. I'm with, you know, with the students, I create um, educational opportunities for them. We go on field trips. We went to the, you know, we went to the Cleveland Orchestra. We, I, I brought in professionals and we did professional development panels with the kids. Um, I, you know, have a collaboration with the library system. I put on a thing called Listen at the Library. On the community engagement side, we have a lecture series that I put together and everything where we're interfacing with the community when we're playing out in the community not in the concert hall that's in my realm of of what i do and so it's a lot of meetings it's a lot of interfacing with people it's a lot of 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 creating you know i i I talked earlier about how i wanted to directly create things that would be on our stage and i do that i write i literally write what happens that's you know i i could keep talking about what i do in my job because when you're at a, a group orchestra of our size, there's only six people working. So we all do a lot. My job description, you know, with recent events has changed to a lot of video editing. (laughs) Everyone has been doing a ton of video editing, but you know, I, it's, I absolutely love my job and all the people I get to meet. And I got to create a partnership with a local vineyard. We're doing a concert series that actually is getting to happen with social distancing at the vineyard. And it's happening. The first one's in two weeks. So that's very exciting for me. I am not in charge of educating in the sense of I'm not a teacher in the classroom, but I am charge of educating a community about the Canton Symphony Orchestra and about orchestral music for anyone ages three to a hundred. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it for sure. This is coming that's how I sum here. it up. It's okay. You have, you have the stamp of approval. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I always... As you know, as someone who's, who's, whose partner is a teacher, I'm never going to say, I teach like I'm in a classroom. Never, ever, because I do not do that. Yeah. But yeah. I definitely want my job first and foremost is to educate. So. so one of the issues that I feel like a lot of orchestras are facing is the fact that keeping classical music sort of alive for the younger generation. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's a lot of your responsibility in your job with the whole educating thing. So mm-hmm. how do you make orchestra fun for kids? Can you get a little more mm-hmm. in depth with that with some of the projects you've done? Yeah. So this is such a huge question, right? Oh um, yeah. And I, and I, and I think that I've thought about this a whole lot and I kind of think about it with all of the programming I put together. Orchestral music, classical music is not for everyone and it's never going to be for everyone. Just like country music isn't for everyone, just like rap music isn't for everyone. But I do believe that orchestra music, orchestral music should have more of a place in our lives. The reason orchestral music doesn't have a place in a lot of people's lives is because it's harder to understand. There are barriers to entry out the window and historically has not been for everyone. Mm-hmm. So when I'm thinking about the next generation of orchestral musicians, the next generation of patrons, the next generation of donors, the next generation of people who just go to the park and want to listen to a violin, I think about 
educating them about things like what are key signatures? <laughs> Why did he write this piece when he wrote this piece? Why do I only see a bunch of white dudes on stage? Why, you know, I think about, there's so many questions that I think about and it's, it's almost, it's almost hard. It's not something that you can just fix or just talk about or just, it's, it's such a big issue. So when I'm talking about my kiddos, my little ones, my little babies, so I have symphony land, which is for ages three to five and they're my little babies. I chose a book series this year that had been done before, like 10 years ago. So I could have something to work off of since it was my first year doing it. I said, okay, let's not try to reinvent the wheel. Let's look at something that's been done before revamp it a bit. Mm -hmm. Looking for this next year, I said, okay, let's pick a book to go along with this series that was written by a person of color. Let's just start there. Let's just start there. That seems easy to do. There's a lot of people of color who write children's books because that program, when I take it into the schools and the Head Start programming, a majority of the kids there are children of color. And while my musicians might not be of color because most orchestral musicians are not, that's not a problem I can fix right now. I cannot fix that issue. So I can show a book that has kids of color on the pages and was written by a person of color and approach that through social emotional learning and social emotional topics in this presentation of orchestral music. Like, oh my gosh, look at this violin. It is so wonderful. And I'm doing it with a story that has someone in it that looks like you. This could be you Mm -hmm. one day. Yeah. Or at least you have a place in this conversation and really getting this, the students up close and personal with the musicians, you know, the, in those, in those programs, the musicians hold the book and they get up there and they're reading the kids, the book, they get right up in and the kids come and they want to touch the cello and they want to touch the bass and, and the musicians let them, I, you know, the musicians talk, they interface with the kids and then they play their, 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 instruments and they're really candid with the kids about what they do and why they play and they do it through this storytelling thing kids are getting engaged orally through their ears they're getting engaged visually through the book they're getting in uh, you know they they have they have touch they can you know actually go and touch the instrument and and then they're with their peers and with adults who are treating them like they have a voice in this conversation so yes that three-year-old might not grow up to become an orchestral musician, but at least maybe they'll have a memory of a time that one weird guy who played the cello read me a story and I got to hear some cool stuff. You know, that's one level of educating and looking towards the future. On the complete opposite spectrum of like the, the older adults, this might seem like a, like a contradictory thing of like, when we're talking about the next generation, why am I looking at the people who are kind of out the door, who are doing their planned giving right now? Like, why am I looking at those people? I'm looking at those people because those are the ones who are going to encourage to know that they have to advocate for it. So talking to my older patrons about why orchestra is important for everyone, why this is a huge touchy subject with them, why new music is important. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, why diversity in the audience is a good thing. Because if the people who are in the audience right now are going to look down upon new, quote unquote, progressive, it's not progressive, it's just normal, but 
new things in the concert hall, the people who we want to come into the concert hall aren't going to feel comfortable. And so trying to break down those barriers of, hey, it's okay if someone comes to the orchestra in a pair of jeans. It's okay if someone wants to clap in between movements. I know that might be sacrilegious to say. I am of the opinion that we should express ourselves when we feel so. Yeah. Um, but, you know, breaking down these barriers of what was and what could be, but those two things seem so different right now. We've got to try to figure out a way to bring those closer. And yeah. the people in their 30s and their 40s who have a bunch, who are raising kids right now and are very tired are less likely to come to the orchestra. It's really hard to get those people to come to the orchestra because they're busy. They are working. Yeah. They get a date night every once in a while and maybe they just want to go eat a pizza and then fall asleep early. That's totally fine. So we need to figure out how to get orchestra into people's lives as a like normal thing. It's been like this delicacy for only the high class and the upper echelon of society. And it's been music by white European men. So until we change what the hall, this, this, sounds, this sounds so silly, and I don't know how to say it any other way, but until we change what the hall looks like, we can't change what the hall will look like. I don't know if that makes sense. That was me snapping. That was good. Okay, okay, yeah. Like, in t but until we change what the hall looks like, we can't change it. And so in my educational programming, you know, I'm t I talked about the little kids and just like showing people of color. I can't do that with my musicians right now, but I can do it with the book. So I'm going to do it with the book. With my, my lecture series I mentioned, it happens Mondays at noon. So it's a bunch of retired people. No one else comes. Every once in a while, I'll get homeschoolers there, which is really fun. But it's usually retired people. So I made the decision this year, every single lecture speaker this year, with the exception of our music director, because it's his 40th, he's going to do one of them, is a female not only because of the anniversary of the ratification of the 19th amendment, but also because looking at years past, not always, but it's always majority male speakers. And I said, okay, I'll just be more intentional this year and get female lecturers. There are so many of them in the state of Ohio. And so I'm not going to like announce that to the crowd, but they're going to see all female speakers throughout the year. And hopefully some of them will get pushed in their viewpoints in a couple of different areas. Little things like that. We, like a lot of people in this country, when the protest started, a lot of organizations, particularly orchestral organizations, were very reactive to that situation. You know, they posted about the movement and they started making statements about, you know, supporting racial equity and supporting our black community and the Canton Symphony did the same thing. And then we kind of like launched into this is like, Oh my God, we have to start featuring black musicians. We need to do this. We, we have these people we've worked with in the past. Like, can we get something online right now? Like, can we do a lecture series? Can we do a conversation? Can we do this? Can we do that? And at one point I kind of me and the executive director looked at each other and me and Michelle, we were like, okay, if we're going to do something about this, we need to do this intentionally. This can't be just a react. Like, I'm glad we're reacting to the situation right now, but we should have been proactive. This shouldn't oh, yeah. be something that we're reacting to, and yet we are. Okay, so let's fix this.
we need to be proactive. So she was like, okay, we need to create something long-term that's going to last. And then our marketing director was like, what about a podcast? Which is so funny because we're on a podcast, which is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We need, so we, a, a black composer that we commissioned a piece back in 2009 or eight, one of those years, we met with him on zoom and we said, we have this idea. We want to do a podcast. We want to have a podcast called orchestrating change where we can have conversations, candid conversations without the fear of offending someone, without the fear of, of maybe putting someone off who gives us a lot of money without, you know, candidly about why our industry is racist and why our industry is sexist and what can we do to fix it. So we're in the works of planning that. And, you know, I'm really glad we are taking time with it. We are going to do it right. And we want it to be something that we start podcast episode one and 10 years from now we have podcast episode 112, you know, because it shouldn't be every February when we remember that black composers exist. Oh yeah. You know, and for a lot of orchestras that I'm not going to say every orchestra, a lot of orchestras do really good stuff. Not even just orchestras, school programs do that where school they just, pro, you know, school like, program, like black history month concert. And I'm like, why don't you just use black composers throughout the entire year? Yeah, why yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, and, and Eric Gould, the, the composer that we're working with, he said that. And I was like, you're so right, Eric, you're so right. And yep. so we, it's like, it's like, here's our token black composer for the 10 year period. We'll maybe come back to another black composer in 10 years. See you then. Like we are guilty of this. We don't, we don't program black composers. We haven't. Well, Eric, but that was like 10 years ago. So it's been 10 years maybe. And so we have been doing this online virtual, we do something called club Z when we're in person. It's where people can buy alcohol and like hang out before the performances. We're doing virtual club Z on Friday nights where we one person from the staff makes a cocktail and then listens to a piece of music and comments on it, like live on Facebook. I happen to be the one hosting it on Juneteenth. And so at the beginning, I said, hi, it's Juneteenth. Like I talked about it for like five minutes at the beginning. And then the, we listened to Wynton Marsalis's violin concerto. A, a lot of people don't realize Wynton Marsalis was anything but a jazz trumpeter. And, and two, he's a black composer. So I subtly tried to do that. And then the next week, without me even realizing it, one of our board members chose Florence Price's Concerto in One Movement, which she is a black female composer who is the first, I believe, first black composer to have a piece premiered by the Chicago Symphony. But, you know, so we've started to do stuff like that. I didn't even tell my board member to choose a piece by a black musician. She just did. And I was so I was like, yes, Jenny. Yes. Thank you. Yes, um, Jenny. And so, yes, Jenny. And she was great and it was wonderful. And she didn't even like make a big deal about it. And I, which is good because it shouldn't be a big deal. There is no easy solution to these big picture issues. I can't look at my musicians and be like, not enough of you are black. So I'm going to have to ask none of you to come back and we re-audition everyone right? Yeah. I can't do that. In order for me to get more black on musicians on stage, I need more black kids in the classroom who are learning this violin. In my entire yep. Canton Symphony program, Canton Youth Symphony program, I have one student who identifies 
as black one and I have 90 kids. Yep. And that's just that it's the same in orchestras. You go to the Cleveland orchestra. One time I counted four black people on stage and I freaked out. Yeah. There was four. I guess they all got hired for that concert because I'm pretty sure that's all that the Cleveland orchestra has. Yeah. They don't don't have many. And I think we shouldn't have to be counting the number of people yeah, we focus on shouldn't be. out of the orchestra, but that's what we do because yep. the systematic things that are in place in mm-hmm. classical music have not served people of color. Yeah. Why would someone of color want to enter into a field of music where they have never been represented? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I greatly admire, like, the thing is they have been represented just their representation has been hidden for many years and yes. you have to go exist to find it no it exists you gotta dig for it yes and you know i saw this really cool program that's on on facebook today someone's a, a, a horn player she's a horn player i think in the berlin phil i forget her name but she had a program called mozart and mambo in might Cuba. be sarah willis that's the only sarah, yeah, yeah 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 yes that's her name Music, music and mumbo and like yeah. people would be like those two things don't go together I'm like hell yeah they do um <laughs> you know that's what it's like I grew up in bluegrass music and I play the bassoon in orchestra and I'm like bassoon and bluegrass 100% go together yeah if you can make that work you could make yeah you 100 like all of this music goes together and we should be celebrating all these cultures that you know bar talk stole a ton from eastern european dance tradition. You know, there's a lot of composers took from their heritage or they looked at other heritages like that's cool sounding. I'm gonna stick it in Beethoven, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's something that we just don't teach. We whitewash classical music when yes, a majority European men have written music, but there is a ton of classical music and there's a ton in the canon. There's a ton of repertoire that we could be playing that is wonderful and that audiences would appreciate and that donors would still support if they only knew about it and were educated about it. And I don't have power over programming the season, but I definitely have a say in, you know, what we're doing community wise. And I do have a voice, you know, we're such a small staff. I could say, Hey, I think we should maybe look at our season next year and change a couple of things. Don't know if I would get listened to necessarily because I do not have the final say. You know, it's the music director's job. He's the one who programs. But I can at least start that conversation in the community and in the classroom. And hopefully, this was such a long-winded answer to that question. (laughs) And, you know, honestly, I don't even know if I answered that question. But it's, the answer is that there are too many big issue things. And there's too many things that I can't change today. So the things that are more long-term, we are planning long-term and the things that I can control, I'm choosing to change now. I'm choosing to look back and be like, I could have done that better. Let's change it next year. And I, you know, I, I almost doubt that anyone really notices, right? Mm -hmm. How many people are going to be like, oh my God, it was all female speakers at conversations this year. Some females may notice. No, and that's the thing. But the people who we the people in the orchestral world that we're worried about, yeah, you know, the people that we're worried are going to get offended and then not, not give us their dollars. I don't know if they'll notice. 
And then maybe they will notice and be like, wait, that was cool. We'll just gradually wiggle it in there. Yeah, you just got to gradually. Well, you know, I say gradually, but then I'm also like, I just kind of want to slap them upside the head with it too. Exactly. So, <laughs> but you know, there is no short answer. I'm trying my best. Since I was not trained as an educator, yeah, I am doing a lot of educating myself to make sure that I present things in a way that is A, authentic, B, actually educational, and C, will have long-term effects on the people that hear it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see, you know, I, I've only been doing this job for a year, so there's still a lot of growth to do and little, still yeah. a lot of things that we're going to be changing, but I, there's going to be a ton of changes happening, hopefully. I think you've done a lot in your first year, I think, and I think it's in a very positive direction. I, under, I understand when people are like, I don't really like classical music. I get it. I literally can understand. I will be like, yeah, I understand. Classical really- music has isolated itself. From oh yeah, it, it has isolated itself. And it's, if you, if you don't understand why Beethoven seven third movement is so cool, if you don't understand the way, why he wrote it the way he did and what he's doing in that movement, mm-hmm. then you're, it's hard. It's, it's, it's not like you can listen to the lyrics and find connection. You're like, oh my God, yeah. I've been through that. Yeah. You, it, it's so much harder to grasp onto and people don't have orchestral education in order to grasp onto it. Yes, there are some pieces of music that are universal that people always are like, oh my God. Like, mm-hmm. like the big, like Carmina Burana, like the O Fortuna, like most people would hear that and maybe think car commercial, but also it's like a wall <laughs> of power. And I'd be hard pressed, pressed to find someone who doesn't be, get affected by that. Yeah, yeah. But with, you know, with with Mozart and Haydn, you kind of, you got to understand it to appreciate it. Exactly. So, you know, that's also an issue that we can't fix overnight, but here we are. (laughs) You can start talking about it. We're trying. Yes, we're trying. (laughs) But yeah, no, I I really think that you're moving things in a positive direction. And that's one of the reasons why I want to have you on because I was Mm. seeing all of the social media and the videos that were, you were putting out there for the academy yeah. and what you were doing on your own personal accounts. And I was like, oh my gosh, we need to talk <laughs> to her because I think the things that you're doing, some of the things people haven't, I don't, I don't want to necessarily think they haven't thought of before, but they think that, you know, little old me and my little old job, mm. I can't mm-hmm. elicit change. Mm, However, yeah. you can always change. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. will you be changing the world in your little job? Probably mm. not. But you can, for what is your responsibilities in your job, you can make those changes and they will yeah. have a ripple effect. It may take yeah. years, but you yeah. need to start now. I was on a call with all of, not all of them, but a bunch of education directors at, at symphonies across America. And we, you know, we get to, we have, we have a pretty tight knit community and we all like get together and we're like, having drinks, like all freaking out about what's happening in the world right now. But one person asked, they're like, okay, what do I do if I'm at an orchestra where they don't want to say anything about Black Lives Matter and police brutality? Mm-hmm. And we all kind of were like, a lot of us were lucky that we're at organizations that want to say something. And we were like, say something in your position. You don't have to, you know, you don't have, you are not in the power to make a public statement. Your goal shouldn't to get fired because of what you're saying, because you need to be within the organization to make change. So what can you do within your programs, within your education that you're doing at the symphony that is slowly spoon feeding these ideas in? And that's when we, we talked about picking books by people of color and like stuff like that of like, you can control that. 
And when you get a positive response from the community, especially this, you know, especially if you're in a community that is 80% black, if you get a positive response from the community, your boss can't ignore it. Your board can't ignore it. So you find ways, change the things you can control, you know, and you you mentioned of like, it's like having, like, you're not going to change the world, but you can change something. A lot of people, you know, having confidence in your own abilities and saying, I don't know all the answers. I don't know. Half the time I look at my job and I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but here we go. You know, like Mm -hmm. as long as you have, you know, confidence in your underlying abilities and your passion and your drive for change, you can do something. But if you sit back on your butt, which is like when I was talking about colleges, finding colleges that will push you and how BW was like, Rachel, do your, do it, go just do it. If you sit back on your butt, literally nothing's going to happen. So, you know, (laughs) if you at least try something, and especially if you put your drive and your passion, even if it's a little wild at times behind it, that's better than nothing. And I would argue that wild passion sometimes is better than calculated teeny tiny steps. You know, sometimes you have to be calculated in the long term, like with this podcast. This podcast, if we're going to do it right, we got to do it right. So we're taking time to find the right partners, to get the support, to have video and audio capabilities so that we can, because we have a a large audience and we want to be able to really get them educated. We're going to take time with that. But on our weekly live on Facebook, we can have a composer of color there. Yeah. That's easy. That's so easy. I come from a place of great privilege. I come from a state, you know, Oklahoma is a lot of white people. Um, <laughs> I love, I love Oklahoma, but I, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I, I grew up with a lot of white people and I, you know, I was blessed to have awesome friends growing up who were people of color and I never really thought anything of it. And until I worked, you know, until I started growing up and I was like, well, wait, this is, why is the world, why, wait, what's happening in the world? What's going on? And then suddenly I woke up to the fact that, oh my gosh, the world is not sunshine and roses for most of the people here. Yeah. And you as a person of privilege have a responsibility to do something about it. And so, especially in an industry that is full of people of privilege, mm-hmm. you have a responsibility to do something about it. While I, you know, I don't work I am not the executive director of New York Phil. Deborah's doing a great job though. Go Deborah. You know, like I'm not the executive director of the New York Phil, but I am for someone my age in a position of a little bit of power. So I can do something. So I, I don't yeah. know. I'm ram- you know, rambling. I could literally talk about this forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why, that's why you're here though. But yeah. I think you're, you're, you are creating a lot of positive change. Mm. That's Thank you. I wanted you on and I wanted mm. you to talk about those things. And I do agree with your talk about privilege. You know, I came from a predominantly white neighborhood and white town mm-hmm. as well. And mm-hmm. so and I teach in a very diverse school district now. So I do yeah. understand where you're coming from. One thing that I've had to realize is that as someone who has privilege, sometimes I need to use my voice to try to create change. But for a majority of the time, I need to like shut up and listen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, having conversations with other people, you know, surrounding this podcast and surrounding and listening to my students. And while they're, while my students are not racially that diverse, 
They come from very diverse backgrounds. And I've had some wonderful conversations with them about the future and what they want to see. And, you know, listening to my older patrons and listening, you know, it's all about listening and understanding your privilege and understanding your power and by listening, knowing when it needs to be used. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being on and talking about your experiences and thank you. your life and what your projects are. And this is all yeah. really exciting. So I'm really looking forward to what Canton's going to be doing in the future. Yeah, I hope it's, you know, we, we've got a lot of plans and I know this is a group of people that has follow through. So I'm really excited for the future as well. Thank you so much, Rachel. You're awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Cassidy. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you're like, commenting, and sharing with your friends. Please make sure you're following us on our Instagram. Our account is at musicherstorypod and our Twitter account, which is at musicherstory. We also now have a Facebook page, so please look up our podcast on Facebook. If you would like to be a guest on the show, please either send me a DM on any of those accounts or email musicherstorypod at gmail.com. Would love to have you. Please send your headshot and a bio about yourself so I get to know you a little bit before we do this interview. So if you are considering it even, just send me a message and I would love to talk to you. Thanks.